0: Beyond the Babel is now in session. We have some very powerful preventative tools. Um, we've had them for many years. Um, those tools are reasonable efforts to prevent removal and reasonable efforts to finalize the permanency plan. Because of some of what we've previously discussed um, and some of what I've uh, squarely placed on the shoulders of the federal government, I'm not sure... Um, that I can say that those findings are treated with the seriousness that the statute requires or that the legislative intent um, created them to be.
1: Beyond the collab of Babel, meet the people behind the studies, programs, projects, and initiatives. Beyond the collab of Babel, keeping you motivated and focused through the
2: challenges.
1: Beyond the Collabo Babel, sparking innovation, improvement, and reform. Beyond the Collabo Babel, listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Welcome to Beyond the Collabo Babel, a podcast committed to sharing stories of collaboration, systems improvement, and systems reform in the Colorado courts, and introducing you to the people leading these efforts and taking action. The star of today's podcast is David Kelly, Special Assistant to Associate Commissioner, Children's Bureau. Administration of Youth and Families, United States Department of Health and Human Services. I am your host, Bill Delisio, Family Law Program Manager at the Colorado State Court Administrator's Office, Court Services Division. David, I just want to thank you for joining the Beyond the Collabo babble podcast. How are you today?
0: I'm doing well, Bill. It's great to be with you. Thanks for the invite. Yeah,
1: well, we're, you're the first guest, the first time I've recorded somebody outside of the Colorado Judicial Department. Um, so this is a big first for a Beyond the Collabo babble And I want the audience to know we're in Washington, D.C. today in a meeting talking about the Family First Prevention and Safety Act. And um, I wanted to get your perspective on the act to try to help educate the judicial officers and the branch employees in Colorado. But before we get started, the first question i like to ask is, what does Beyond the Collabobabble mean to you?
0: It means a genius name. Um, Collaboration is one of those words we use all the time uh, to the extent that I... I think it becomes meaningless. So I, I love, uh, love the name Collabababble.
1: All right. So why don't you just give the audience a little background on uh, the story of how you became special assistant uh, and the CIP program coordinator nationally for, uh, for the Children's
0: Bureau? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, I've been with the Children's Bureau a, a number of years. Um, <clears throat> and uh, prior to that, I was in direct service. So I, I represented kids and parents and i like to say kids who were parents um, uh, for several years for making my way into government. And um, I'd known of and participated in some of the work of the Court Improvement um, <clears throat> Program, uh, where I practiced in New Jersey, um, <clears throat> and saw the opportunity to, to come to federal government and kind of get a hold of that program. Uh, try to shake it up a little bit, bring in some innovation. Um and uh got lucky to uh to get that yeah. job. <laughs> Been around for a few years and um had a chance to work with commissioners um now from uh, a couple of different administrations and um was lucky enough uh that that uh Jerry Milner mm-hmm. um was put into the role that he's in in this administration. Um and um he asked if I might be interested in, in promoting a vision um, that uh, squarely focused on strengthening families, um, prevention, and elevating uh, nationally the role of the legal and judicial community in improving outcomes um, for kids and families. Uh, uh, families, and that was uh, an offer I couldn't turn couldn't down. Turn
1: down. Well, yeah, you have been with the CIP for some time now. It's almost it feels like it's close coming up to a decade ago, and I know. I, when you were early on in your role, we invited you out to Colorado to uh, join our court improvement program on our, what we called our international site visit to yeah. visit uh, the the tribes in Colorado or the tribes that we have a lot of contact with. I think we went to the Navajo nation, the Ute mountain Ute and the Southern Ute tribes. That's right. And uh, Four corners. Yeah, so um, the audience needs to know that you've been, you've spent some time in Colorado. Um, and so you've got a sense for what our program is trying to accomplish in terms of improving and reforming the system. And, I thought today would be a great opportunity for me to get your perspective on Families First Prevention Services Act in October of 2018. We brought together um, our stakeholders, meaning our judicial officers and attorneys, to come together and talk about what it meant. And and, um, we're all trying to learn this together. And the vision, the vision is what I keep hearing from you and Commissioner Milner. Mm -hmm. Vision. Mm -hmm. Each state needs to come up with a vision. It's not just about compliance, it's not just about implementation of the law and the tick the box and get it right, but it's about a vision. So can you just talk about why is judicial and court leadership and judicial, the legal community so important to, uh, to this effort and reshaping child welfare?
0: I'll do my best. Um, well, first of all, I think Colorado is way out in front and doing an exceptional job and asking the hard questions and trying to figure out what uh, Family First is all about. Um, the vision is, is critical. Um, we think that Family First um, brings some really critical tools to the table uh, to try to help achieve better outcomes for kids and families. But we think that absent broad-based um, <clears throat> support for um, this notion that um, prevention is something worth doing, Um, that prevention brings value to um, the lives of kids, um, helps make family integrity more possible, helps strengthen communities, Um, we have to see a a true commitment to those ideas. Um, You know, that child welfare is really about addressing family vulnerability. Um, You know, historically, 60% of the kids in foster care have been there due to neglect not physical or sexual abuse, but neglect. Um, That number is only increasing. I think signals to all of us that
2: we ought to be focused on addressing the conditions that lead to neglect. Um, I think that this can be a
0: stretch for the legal and judicial community. We get involved after a report's been made, after something's been filed, after people appear in court. I think it's a little bit of a stretch. Um, to find our role in that, I think there are some clear roles. We probably will talk about that a little later mm-hmm. on. But um, I think that courts, judges especially, feel the direct impact of the lack of prevention work in our system. And they feel that impact by having incredibly large docket sizes, um, by facing the heartbreaking and frustrating. Circumstances of multiple generations of the same family coming back in the in the court, um, <clears throat> judges long, I think, to be able to help get those families what they need. Um, uh, but historically, those things largely have not been available, mm-hmm. um, so we're stuck. And I think family first helps us. Um, get out of that ditch a little bit if we all get behind uh, the vision. Um, But if we don't get behind the vision, I'm not sure we got, uh, uh, excuse me, I'm not sure we get out of that ditch. I think we just uh, add another box to check about congregate care decisions to a form order, um, court order. Okay.
1: and a bench card that make sure we make all the right findings on the record and use the right language. And this vision is more than this. Um, One of the parts of the vision that I wanted to ask you a little bit about today too, um, in the summer in July and the new informational memo that's gone out, and I don't have the exact number, do you know it off the top of your head? CBIM
0: 1805.
1: CBIM 1805 uh, really kind of went through a summary of that meeting in July that that I'm sure you might want to talk about with a little bit more detail. But one thing that was an aha moment for me at that meeting that I had never really thought of it this way. I've always thought of child welfare as child protection. And this meeting made the point to emphasize to those of us that were in attendance that child protection is part of child welfare. And so are courts. Courts are also part of child welfare. And we should work as one integrated system towards providing a continuum of services that meet families' needs. Traditionally, I think we look at ourselves in silos and we kind of think of child welfare as child protection. And courts often, maybe in a non-juvenile case, a domestic relations case, will make a referral to child protection when they see something that's concerning. We all know there are going to be those instances where it may rise to the level of abuse and neglect. We also know that we may not have abuse and neglect. We may have poverty. We may have families who, who need some services to support them. And instead of getting the services to support them, they end up in a compliance system that is sometimes punitive and doesn't always offer them what they need. So what, what is part of your vision um, as, a, as looking at the system broadly as child welfare and courts being part of that? But what else is part of that vision?
0: So some listeners may have seen this already. And for those who have, I apologize. This is repetitive. <laughs> We're really trying to shake things up at the federal level. Um, we're trying to give
2: states and localities the space to do things differently. Um, this compliance
0: mentality is, is largely driven by the um, feds. And we have taken a hard look in the mirror and reached the conclusion that that's not helping improve outcomes for kids and families. Kind of getting more of the same. The number of kids continues to rise entering foster care. The outcomes continue to be wholly unacceptable. Oftentimes, our interventions are causing more trauma than uh, the neglect hmm. that may have happened in that family. And there's research to show that now. Research that so, shows
1: that our intervention is more harmful, or maybe has let. An impact of doing nothing uh, would have been better to leave the children with their family than our intervention. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that there's clear evidence now. Clear that, evidence. This isn't just speculation. There's not speculation, enough studies not, that you would say
0: this. Not wishful. Not thinking. wishful thinking. Yeah. Um, that the trauma of removing a child from his or her his or her parents mm-hmm. um, is an adverse childhood experience. <laughs> even if it's short-term, that a child may never recover from. It affects brain development, affects the ability to form relationships, the ability to be a self-sufficient member of society. These things are profound. Yet, um, out of, I think, often very good intentions, there have been mindsets within our community in particular, meaning attorneys, meaning attorneys attorney and community. judges, the legal and judicial community, um, you hear these things. When in doubt, pull them out. Um,
2: uh, This focus on safety, this focus
0: on the idea that um, we're somehow helping kids by taking them away from their families when their lives are not in danger. Right is misguided So,
1: we're sort of like there's risk and there's a risk factor and the risk could be that something really bad is going to happen but in fear of that risk factor not an actual outcome of something bad happening we're pulling them out of the homes that's right
0: Yeah, um, and I, I would go beyond yeah. that bill and say that the fear of the potential risk of harm that motivates us to take kids away from their parents where they don't necessarily need to be Guarantees that we do harm Mm, to those kids.
1: Yeah. I don't know if this works, but uh, I don't know if you saw the free solo movie with Alex Arnold who free soloed El Capitan. Haven't seen it. Okay. Well, what's interesting is he's free soloing a, I don't know, 2,000 foot vertical wall practically. And he says, The risk of me falling is very low. Of course, if I do fall, the repercussion is very severe. I'll be dead. But I feel like this is kind of the game that we play in child welfare sometimes. We see the risk. We've seen maybe even that risk play out a few times. And so to try and prevent the catastrophic, we actually introduce something that's not much better. Or maybe, right. it's, maybe it's delayed. I don't know. Maybe the, the, the impact takes longer. Uh, maybe something bad happens years down the road and we don't see it, so we don't connect the two actions. I don't know.
0: You know, I think there's, there's truth in all of that. Um, I think what happens is... Um,
2: In attempting to mitigate that risk, um, we we end up doing um, a lot of unintended harm Mm -hmm. to kids and families.
0: It's it's not to say there will not always be a need um, for some kids to be removed from their homes. Um, That need will always be there. Our perspective. Um, is that that need is lower than we may realize. Um, And so the vision that we have is really focused on squarely addressing those issues that leave children vulnerable to maltreatment. It's the idea that our system could be working to prevent maltreatment in the first place which is, I know, kind of hard to wrap your head around, um, as opposed to just waiting for bad things to happen and responding, and that child welfare could be redesigned um, to serve dual and complementary purposes. So to be working up front in the prevention arena um, to try to address known risk factors in voluntary, non-stigmatic ways at the community level, so that there are places that families know um, they can go to to get support and in asking for support, they're not at risk for having their kids taken away. So there's that work, which we believe that if done in a robust way, is going to um, build the protective factors or the abilities of families to care of their kids and reduce the number of reports that are even made. And we have some um, uh, examples we recently highlighted of areas that have shown success there um, I'm aware of some other research that will be forthcoming that, that, that shows some really positive results there. So what we're trying to do is reduce the, the instances of maltreatment in the first place, reduce the number of calls that are needed to child welfare, reduce the number of removals that are made based on those calls mm-hmm. if we're able to link those families up with the services that they need, that space right there is where Family First is helpful because okay. um, it will now allow us uh, to um, for, for children who are at imminent risk give their um, parents the opportunity to access prevention services for mental health, substance abuse, and in-home parenting. Um, we have not previously been able to use federal dollars to, to do that mm-hmm. um, before a kid enters the system, but now we can. And then once for those kids that need to enter foster care Um, we want to make sure that uh, kin is always considered first um, community is always considered um, and that no kids stay in foster care a day longer than they absolutely need to so what I just described there we've been describing as the prevention continuum Um, social workers Researchers would say there's primary, secondary, and tertiary. Mm -hmm. The way I try to break that down for um, the legal and judicial community um, is the work we do outside of the courtroom and the work we do inside the courtroom. I think uh, all levels can fit into one of those
2: neat boxes. Um, So we think that that type of change is possible.
0: We don't think it's possible unless. Judges and attorneys out there also think that's a productive um, direction to go in. Also think that there's, frankly, a moral imperative to go in that direction based on what we know about trauma, the outcomes we're achieving, etc. So
1: courts really and legal professionals who um, have this hands-on experience with cases that have been hi- hi- filed in a court um, are probably pretty knowledgeable on what resources don't exist in their communities and the type type of services that they would really like to be able to provide. And and it sounds like what you're saying is being part of a group that's advocating for the creation of these services prior to a court action being filed in your community, being part of that discussion, bringing your knowledge, bringing your firsthand experience of the families where you've seen it work well and where you've seen it not work well and trying to replicate those things that work well prior to court filing. And, um, but I know, I know that some of our listeners are going to want to say, okay, well, what can I do also in my actual court cases? Like, what are some of the things that, that you see surrounding removals, family separation and trauma? You've mentioned these things. What do, what are some of those issues that around those three things, um, removals at the onset, family separation and trauma that, that courts could do today, even in their active caseloads?
0: Yeah, it's really a great question. And, um,
1: or what can we do together? And Maybe not an individual case, but systemically, what do you see as important? Either one. I.
0: You know, I think the answer is the same, whether it's at the individual level or systemically. And we have some very powerful preventative tools. Um, we've had them for many years. Those tools are reasonable efforts to prevent removal and reasonable efforts to finalize the permanency plan. Because of some of what we've previously discussed um, and some of what I've uh, squarely placed on the shoulders of the federal government, I'm not sure um, that I can say that those findings are treated with the seriousness that the statute requires or that the legislative intent um, created them to be if we really think hard about most of the cases that we may be familiar with or have been a part of and think about that initial removal hearing, I don't know what it's called in your jurisdiction,
2: um, but can we honestly say that efforts were made to prevent the removal? What specifically
0: did we do? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a line of questioning that, that judges, if they take on with intention, can use to change the culture of what happens in the courtroom, change the expectations of all parties involved. And yes, certain of these findings, if a judge finds that um, reasonable efforts were not made, do carry
2: um, financial implications in terms of when federal dollars can be claimed in when they cannot. Um, That's part of what has bred this compliance culture. But I I would
0: invite everyone to think of reasonable efforts to prevent removal and reasonable efforts to finalize permanency plans as joint goals across the agency, respondent parent counsel, um, children's attorneys, the agency, and in fact, the courts. None of those parties want kids in foster care that don't need to be there. Um, none of those parties want to unintentionally cause more trauma to kids. Um, and none of those parties are, are happy with the outcomes we're achieving. So if we see reasonable efforts, um, really taking the time to understand what a family needs, really trying to make sure that those needs are met, um, <clears throat> creating plans with those families to help achieve those needs. This is the substance of reasonable efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think for fear of, I, th- I think the fear of loss of dollars from making no reasonable efforts, a traditional mindset of reasonable efforts as kind of a stick mm-hmm. that is used against the agency um, Combine to reinforce this compliance culture. Whereas, if we saw it as our common charge and duty to do everything we can um, to prevent the trauma of removal, um, the additional trauma of uh, the foster care experience, um, we've got something to work with there
2: already. So, the
1: as I'm listening to you talk, I, I think sometimes we think about in that individual case where that finding might be made and the potential negative repercussions. And so by not doing that, what I think I'm hearing you say is you miss this chance to build a new system because you don't document the fact that the reasonable efforts weren't made. You don't highlight a specific service that's maybe not just lacking in that one case, but across the caseload. Uh, So instead of gathering a very important data and information um, that could help maybe advocate in other arenas for resources for these specific things, we've kind of put off making the finding and we don't collect the information we need to have, whether it's Congress or our state legislature, invest funding in specific areas. Is that something that in your role working on a national level? I mean, this is a conversation it came up here today. I'm sure it comes up anytime you travel around the, around the country. And I know you've been doing a lot of speaking on this act. And the other thing I just want to say, uh, the act actually allows funding to be moved into different areas, right? So when we talk about prevention services, just if people are wondering, there are dollars that were specifically tied to foster care that now can be used before a child ever enters foster care for services, right? That is okay. right.
0: It's it is a bit
1: complicated. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't oh. want to oversimplify it, but the but conceptually, the promise yes. of the legislation is that there should be some money there that wasn't there before, without um, a removal occurring and maybe a foster care placement. Exactly okay.
0: right. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah.
1: So I know I know I kind of went off on a tangent there, but where where do you see that that finding of kind of guiding future policy discussions? I mean, if a court found. A, 10% of their cases with no reasonable efforts findings. I'm thinking that's going to move people into action, but um, potentially. Is that what we're hoping? I mean, that we're not hoping for no reasonable efforts findings for the sake of no reasonable efforts, no reasonable efforts findings. But you and Commissioner Milner uh, did write an article, and it was titled A Call for Judicial Leadership in Reshaping Child Welfare in the United States. And it's been in the National Council of Juvenile Family Court Judges' journal. And it's it talks a lot about reasonable efforts. What you were just saying is... is
2: it What's does. curious
1: to me is this is the Federal Bureau, Children's Bureau, talking about reasonable efforts. Actually, kind of saying judges think about these tools.
0: That's right, and um, this is not something the federal government has done before. Yeah, not um, so in my career. <laughs> I, I, I hope that's not lost. Uh-huh. Um, to your point, Bill, which I think was excellent, um, where no reasonable efforts findings um, bring value is that they build evidence. They build a case uh, for um, gaps in service arrays. They help demonstrate the needs that exist within families that have long frustrated the judiciary because um, and long frustrated uh, the Child Protection Agency because they haven't been able to, to provide those services. Um, I, I do not ever intend to vilify uh, the Child Welfare Agency. Um, I think they have not had tools historically that they need to um, have um so there's the no reasonable efforts finding slash um from a legal perspective case building evidence building Mm -hmm. aspect where you're documenting needs and what what would have been helpful or what wasn't provided that kind of deal but our grander ambition is to um
2: set the stage such that um, reasonable efforts are simply made. <laughs> gotcha.
0: You know, we, we have more of an interest in um, helping all of these dedicated professionals who deeply care um, and have, you know, some, some of the most stressful jobs imaginable. Um, it's thankless work. Um, it's not enriching work mm-hmm. in the financial sense, although I... I truly do believe it is um in other more meaningful purpose-driven for sure measures Mm -hmm. um but uh you know what we truly want is for reasonable efforts to be the rallying cry that we all get behind the mantra are the the purpose of what we do to make reasonable efforts to help families stay together safely get back together soon or those instances where that's not possible um with the next best permanent option as
2: quickly as possible.
0: These are old tools. Yeah, um, We just haven't realized them. And, and um, we at the federal government haven't um, gotten behind them in the ways that are most helpful. New tools come with FIPSA. We're grateful
2: for those new tools. They'll be immensely helpful, um, but they have to be seen as part of a bigger effort to promote family integrity, family safety, um, and, uh,
0: oriented towards preventing trauma. And
1: do you just want to mention a few of those new tools? Just, um, we, we don't have to go deep, but just to kind of give an overview because I think and it's played out here today in our meeting that we talk a lot about, um, Congregate care or the highest yeah. levels of care as, as as real specific things that that courts uh, will see a change in in this in this legislation, um, but there's other things that are directly related to what courts, um, what other tools courts can have that maybe people aren't seeing, and maybe you have a couple off the top of your head you can. direct Yeah, us I think towards.
0: that's a, a really important point, Bill. Um, <clears throat> so most of the talk about. Family First, has focused on a couple of things. Um, One is new restrictions on the ability to use federal funding for congregate care placements and a corresponding judicial determination that needs to be made to approve those types of placements. We'll be there to help folks work through that when it's time. Um, The other is what we've already discussed, is that some 4E money, our big pot of money, um, will now be available for the first time for certain prevention services to parents. That's what most of the conversation is centered around because, frankly, that's um, where the financial impact is felt, uh, for better or for worse. Um, other components of the act um, are arguably even more impactful than those okay. two. Um, and yet, actually available now. Okay. Um, but um, have been a little bit overshadowed. Okay. And so, for example, um, as we sit here now, um, a, a, a state child welfare agency can now use federal dollars um, to place children with their parents in residential substance abuse treatment centers. Um, the forty dollars can be used to cover the the board uh, of and twelve months 12 months ago there. that
1: was not available right
0: That's right um. Certain other restrictions on how long um, family preservation services can be provided um, and family reunification services can be provided, which were formerly time-limited, are now not. Um, So provisions such as those um, could be tremendously impactful. Um, But again...
1: Meaning if a court finds the permanent placement for the child early on, they can continue to work with the parents and the family for reunification Key. That's for much key. longer than we've been used to. This 12-month clock or 18-month clock, it depends on where you are and what the case is in Colorado. But this clock has actually, there's a way to extend that clock on services now.
0: On services. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: We, can, we can work with folks earlier and longer mm-hmm. um, uh, and use federal dollars to do so. So there's there's a great opportunity, but at the risk of being competitive here, <clears throat> we need to come together—courts, um, attorneys, child welfare agency,
0: um, other important stakeholders—and <clears throat> reach consensus on what is it we're trying to do. Yeah. You know what? What are we working toward together? Um, uh, in a coordinated way, you know um, the, the struggle for for many years in child welfare um, has in part I think, been attributable to courts and attorneys thinking that uh, child welfare outcomes belong to the child welfare agency alone, and I'm very comfortable saying, yeah. they do not, mm-hmm. right We all contribute to those outcomes. Um, we're all equally. Invested in wanting to improve those outcomes. We've got to jointly own them. Um, and to do that, um, those stakeholders I just mentioned, along with parents and children with lived experience that have been consumers that, that have been impacted in positive and negative ways, need to come together to design your system okay. and your jurisdiction. And that's what we're trying to give um, states and tribes the space to do, the support to do, um, to to break out of this compliance mode that's serving nobody.
1: Okay. Well, David, um, you may be redundant, but I want to ask you: What are three takeaways for this podcast? For what are three takeaways for taking action that you want to share with the audience from this episode of Beyond the Babel?": It's a tough one,
0: um, and I'm going to take seriously the not being redundant here. You can be. Um, be. Oh, I know. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, no. I I mean, it's fine. It's
1: fine. (laughs) I think reiterating these points, like you said, uh, what are we all trying to do? I mean, we got to get some clarity on that. So maybe some of the things you've already said just need to be reiterated.
0: Yeah. Well, we need to use the tools that we already have. We need to realize, even though this might be hard to hear, um, that foster care while sometimes absolutely necessary, is almost always harmful to children. Mm -hmm. It's harmful because of the trauma of that removal. Um, And that um, there is a role, judges and attorneys, a critical role in helping reorient the system um, towards something that is uh, much, much more oriented towards um, Strengthening families, um, and they're keeping them together, and um, in, in respecting uh, the parent-child
2: relationship and the importance of that relationship on healthy development for kids. We've focused almost exclusively on the um, physical safety of kids,
0: and that's critical. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're doing them both a disservice, and in fact harming them Mm -hmm. we don't put equal weight on um, social and emotional well-being
1: our understanding of trauma has really come a long way in the past 20 years and i think if we were able to see it with your eyes or hear it with your ears right we would we would think about it differently but those wounds are sometimes wounds we can't see and so it's not that we're ignoring them it's just that they're not as as easy to spot all the time or they take some sometimes years before they really bubble up to the top. And I think that's when the system reacts to the child is when they act out, not understanding that they've gone through many of these when they act out is because of much of the trauma. Well, those are three great takeaways. Now, I just want the guests to get to know you a little bit so we can finish up here. I'll, I'll cut a few questions out today just because we're running up against the start of this meeting. But tell me something that surprised you about this podcast.
0: I like that question. Okay, I thought you were going to go with one of the personal questions that makes me uncomfortable. Um It was great fun. Okay. Uh have not previously done a podcast. Um I uh will try to convince myself to listen to it. Yeah. Um but it's been um
2: great fun talking to you, Bill. All right.
1: And what's your favorite thing or place in Colorado?
2: <laughs> well, it's got to be Estes Park. Okay,
1: Estes Park. Every time you make a trip out, you try to get up to Estes?
0: I try. Sometimes it's just a uh, drive-through. Yeah. Other times it's a partial day hike, um, but can't get, enough of, uh, can't get enough of the mountains and the beautiful scenery out there. All right.
1: Um, what is something awesome. you believed for a long time that you later found to be
0: untrue? It's probably a long list there, Bill. Um I, I, I think that in more naive days, I believed that if we um set out with good intentions <clears throat> uh, we can't do harm. Mm. And uh I think all of us who, who work in the child welfare system um set out with good intentions, with noble intentions. But I think it's becoming clear that even with those intentions, we're, we're doing harm. Yeah. All
1: right, David. Well, I think that's it for today's episode of Beyond the of Babel. But once again, thank you so much for uh, joining me today and allowing me to interview you. And, and uh, I'm glad I got to do it here in DC while we're at this meeting, trying to figure out how we can reshape the child welfare system and include judicial and legal professionals. Thanks.
0: My pleasure, Bill. I've got every confidence that the Colorado will be able to do just that. Thank you.
1: Well, that's it for this episode of Beyond the Collab. Battle. listen, learn, listen, lead, learn, take action. Listen, learn, listen, lead, learn, take listen, action. Lead, listen, learn, listen, lead, learn, take action.